This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Knowing Jesus Test," was recorded at Wellspring Church on November seventeenth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter two, verses three to six. Today's passage is from First John, chapter two, verses three to six. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, "I know Him," but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Please be seated. This is God's word. So, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we have been going through a a series through John's first letter, the Apostle John, and we are, as Dan just read in chapter two, verses three to six.、Uh, you know, I know for those who are slowly aging and going on in their years of、uh, you know getting older, one of the things that We tend to do is to talk a lot about our injuries, as well as the different medications that we're taking. And、uh, another thing that people tend to talk about as they age is talking about surgeries. Specifically, something that you don't really think about when you're young is thinking about your heart.、Uh, author Pastor Timothy Whitmer tells a story of the time he discovered a heart problem. And he tells this story like this. He says, "Some years ago, I was diagnosed with a mitral valve prolapse, a leaky valve. I was told it was a common problem, and I shouldn't worry about it unless I become symptomatic. Sometime later, I began experiencing symptoms, including shortness of breath and difficulty breathing when I would lie down at night. In fact, as the symptoms got worse, I had to sleep in my recliner because I couldn't breathe lying down. I slept there for weeks." Went from doctor to doctor and even to the emergency room, where I received several diagnoses. It was a virus. It was pneumonia. None of these reflected the reality of the situation. To be honest with you, I was happy they weren't suggesting it was anything serious. But deep inside, I knew it was serious because the symptoms were getting worse every day. Without the proper diagnosis, that is the truth, I would not get the proper treatment. Finally, I went to a new cardiologist who prescribed the appropriate test, which identified that my mitral valve had blown wide open. He described my heart as about as effective as a heater trying to heat a house with all the windows wide open. The diagnosis came on Friday morning. The first thing next Monday morning, I had open heart surgery, and it was only after I had gotten the proper diagnosis that I could receive the proper treatment. And though I was told I needed immediate surgery, I was relieved because someone had finally gotten to the truth of the matter. And again, I think all of us can appreciate what Timothy Whitmer is going through because if you have some debilitating condition or effect, and you go to different doctors and they say, "Oh, it's just a cold. Take two,、uh, take two Advil. Call me in the morning. Whatever it might be," it's never satisfying. Even if the diagnosis were a little bit more serious, obviously you don't want it to be terribly serious, but You just wanted the right diagnosis, because the wrong diagnosis is that we can go on thinking that everything's fine until the symptoms begin to show and they become worse over time. And 
before you know it, you're walking on the edge of death. John gives us this spiritual diagnosis, and he's really telling us that some of us are walking on the edge of death without knowing it. We think we're fine, but deep in our hearts, there is this spiritual disease that is a truly a ticking time bomb. And we need an accurate test to determine what is the problem with our heart. And in this passage of scripture, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, we essentially get this test. This is our way of knowing, are we walking on the edge of death or do we have life? Think of it as the knowing Jesus test. Do you know Christ truly? And if you do, then good for you. You're in a good place. But perhaps, just perhaps, you don't really know the condition of your heart. And this test will provide you that sort of diagnosis. And so it consists of three things. First is obedience, verses 3 and 4. Second is God's word in verse 5. And then third is the walk. Verse 6. So we're going to examine all three parts of this test. The first test that we know Jesus is who he is, is that we desire to obey him. We see this in verses 3 and 4. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. Very obvious, very clear. We know that we come to know him by this. What is the this? If we keep his commandments, if we obey him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, we know to obey Jesus is the way you know you're knowing him. You, you have a relationship with him. One thing to know in light of this is that knowing Jesus is not about perfect obedience. At least not within your own strength, moral, perfect obedience. That doesn't make sense, especially in light of what John said in chapter 1, verse 10. If we go back and read that, he wrote, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So clearly there we see that John is telling us it's impossible to perfectly, morally, righteously obey God. So then here comes the question, is, is John contradicting himself? On the one hand, he's telling us that we need to obey him. On the other hand, he says we can't perfectly obey him. It's not a contradiction. For John, obedience is obviously not perfect obedience. But obedience for John is active pursuit of obedience. It's the regular reality of a need for Christ. And he tells us that in verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John Calvin, theologian, he says this, he describes it this way. John does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments. And no such instance can be found in the world. But those who strive, and there's the big key highlighted neon sign word. Those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. You see, the way we obey his commandments is first acknowledging that we can't perfectly obey them. We try, but we will never get there. But the heart continues to sincerely desire to obey his commandments because he is our father. We do trust him. We believe him. We place our hope in him. 
I think generally children try to obey their parents, generally speaking. You might disagree with me. But generally they try. But of course, they don't do it perfectly. As parents, we have to, and we are not God the Father, so we get impatient when our children fail us, when they disobey us. God is not ever imperfectly angry against sin. He is always perfectly angry against sin. We, on the other hand, are not perfectly angry against sin. So we have these two parts. One is a child wants to obey generally, and if you were to ask them, don't you want to obey me? And if they say, yes, I do, but then they sin, let us not be so harsh, because we ourselves are exactly the same towards God the Father. We have to remember that. So because they desire to obey but fail to obey doesn't mean that they don't actually want to obey. It's just that they fail. But imagine a child who willfully disobeys you all the time. Not because they simply fail to obey you, but because they have no desire to obey you. They have no desire to trust you. And literally, they do the opposite, the antithesis of what you say. You see, that child cannot hide his heart from his parents. His heart reveals that he has no love or desire or relationship with his parents. So in the same way, our desire to obey God reflects our relationship to God. And yes, we will fail him. We do. We'll never perfectly keep the law, keep his commandments. But that doesn't mean that we don't desire to and we persist. We press on. We don't give up. But if we should give up and if we should say, I don't want to do this anymore, I have no desire, that's when the danger comes in. There is an obvious problem that John is addressing in this passage. It is the fact that there are some who are in his church, in the church, who are saying, I know him, but do not keep his commandments. That's why he's mentioning this in the first place. He's addressing a real problem. And if it's a problem for John in his church, it's a problem for us in our church and for every Christian in all churches around the world that in a group of people gathered together, you have some people who say, I want to worship him, I desire to follow him, and I'm going to pursue him with all my might. And they fail and they struggle and they fall and they get up and they keep on going. But there are some in the church since John's day to today, who are back then in present and here today, who say, I know him, I worship him, I follow him. But actually in their heart of hearts, they actually have no desire to trust him. We're going to see specifically different ways this plays out, especially when it talks about, when John talks about in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the loving of the world which is one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life, is to battle this love for the world against the love of the Father. And we'll talk, we'll go into detail about that. But there is that love of the world that says, I know him, but I still love the world. And John's saying, that's not possible. You can't do that. You can say you are a Christian that one time, a long time ago, when you were in high school or in elementary school, you you raised your hand at some revival meeting or youth rally and you said, I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
and you walked down an aisle and you prayed and you even wept. But then the rest of your life has been a life of veering away from God, doing the moral works, looking sort of morally righteous like a Christian, but in your heart of hearts, it has not yielded. We sang about the fact that we bow down. You know, have, have we yielded our heart? Have we bowed down to, to Christ so that everything else is secondary to Him? John says that if we find obedience regularly, without concern over our souls, inconvenient or taxing or burdensome, and that's all we find it, then John says that we're a liar and the truth is not in us. It would actually be better for us to admit, I am not a follower of Christ. I thought I was, but I'm not, because my life is not showing that. It would actually be better to admit that than to deceive ourselves in saying, I am a follower of Christ, but I'm not walking with him at all. have no desire for him whatsoever. But if you know him, and you are a Christian, and you actually have a desire for him, then when you are in a state where you're rebelling against him, turning against him, you'll recognize this is dangerous for your soul. You'll actually be sitting here today and saying, I'm in danger. I need help. I need someone to speak truth in my life. And read through the Proverbs, which I've had the blessing of doing in my personal walk with the Lord, and how many times it says, I want righteous people to speak hard words into my life. I need someone to say something that I don't want to hear, but I need it for my soul. Because my natural worldly self is always going to hide and divert and refuse to listen to someone who actually cares enough to say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm concerned about your soul. I'm concerned about your drift. You're veering away from Christ. Think of a person who has a, a tumor in, a col- in his colon. And that person can say, I have a tumor. I need to go see a doctor and see what can be done. There is a lot of hope for that person who actually acknowledges, I have something wrong with me. I have to get a doctor to see it, to see if perhaps I need surgery. Maybe I could get this removed or have chemotherapy. So that's a, a good place to be. I know it's a bad place, but it's actually a good place. Versus the person who is feeling a little stomach achy and their their wife is saying, hey, you need to go see a doctor. And they're so proud. They're saying, just get away from me. Stop being such a nag. And they refuse to go see a doctor. And eventually they're losing weight. There's pain. And they finally are doubling over, keeling over, not even able to stand them. And they, they get dragged into the uh, the doctor's office. And the doctor says, you know what? You have one month to live. If you would have come to me only a year before, everything would have been okay. We could have got this treated, but now it's stage four and you have one month to live. That's, spiritually speaking, what John is referring to here, is that there are a lot of people in the church. This is not, John's not preaching to non-Christians. He's not preaching out there as an evangelist to the world. He's talking inside the church. And he's saying that there are some of you who saying there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. But your life is not revealing faithfulness, desire to obey, a desire to change, a desire to confess sin and to recognize that I need a Savior. And so because of that, we're just putting it off, putting it off. But my friends, it, it doesn't take much. 
You know, I've shared this story before, but I have to say it again because it's so stark. When I was in seminary, um, on Sundays, many people would go to church to serve or to just to be at church. After all, in seminary, everyone's training essentially to be a pastor, missionary, or a professor of people who are going to be pastors and missionaries. But I can't tell you how many people in seminary did not go to church on Sunday because they were busy studying exegesis papers to preach. Now think about the irony of that, but also think about the soul of that person. That is to say that you can think you're doing well, you're even going to be preaching the gospel to people, but in your own soul there is this dangerous spiritual tumor where you don't even know Christ. So what we're creating then in the pulpit are professionals, people who are clocking in nine to five, getting a paycheck, and no different than any other job or career. That's, that's, um, that's a scary thought on the, really the level of the clergy of today. But this is what happens when we are not willing to obey, even with the pursuit of our hearts. That's a big test. Are you obeying Christ and his word? Which is where we get the second part, the word. John writes in verse 5, But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. We must never forget that obedience is tied directly to obedience to his word. You have to know his word to obey him. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's God's word that we understand all that Jesus did for us. Everything that John spoke of in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 and 2 was, if you can recall, was about the gospel. Jesus is righteous. He's our advocate. He's the one who stands in the gap for us. The gospel is understandable based on his word. And it's his word that we obey that reveals, are we walking with him? Do we know him? Peter writes this very similarly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. There's a lot there. We could unpack that whole text and get to many places. But bottom line, it's the same essential truth that John is saying in John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. It's that God's word is the means by which we, God saves us. He makes us born again. And it's through his word that we're able to love one another. We're in fellowship together. We speak truth to one another. And we keep his word together. The person walking in the light is the one who keeps his word. That's how it works. And Peter says that they have purified souls, or that's essentially the same thing as walking in the light. So walking in the light, purified souls. It's another way of saying the same thing. Also, by your obedience to the truth. All of these things express what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be born again, renewed, transformed. Paul writes as well in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. 
In other words, faith in Jesus must come from the Word of God by His Holy Spirit. And that Word points us to the good news of Christ over and over and over again. So, let me step back. Here's the progression of what Peter, John, and Paul are saying. You cannot know God without being in the light. We've been learning about that. Another way of saying it is you cannot know God without being born again. The only way we can be born again is through the gospel as expressed by his word. So his word shows us what it means to be born again, and his spirit transforms us through that word. And then from there, then, when we are transformed, we desire to obey him. So obedience is directly tied in to how God uses his word in your life. All three coming together. And if we are not regularly drinking from God's word over and over again, we won't know the gospel. We'll drift away. We won't obey him. And it really puts into question, do I believe him or not? Am I transformed? Do I know the gospel? I can't tell you how practical this is. It's so practical. This is how it works. If you go to God's word every day and you know, the problem with Christianity is that we use buzzwords. And good, as I shared last week, words are great. Sin is a powerful word. Awesome is a powerful word. But if you repeat a word over and over again, it loses its meaning. So quiet time, you know, devotions. We hear that word and suddenly we think law, obedience, burden. I have to do my duty. That's how sort of it works when you hear those words. But here's the thing, is that it's ne- it was never meant to be that way. It's supposed to be if you're transformed by what God has done for you, then you obey by delighting in his word. And his word, it's, a, it's really symbiotic. It transforms you. And so that transformation through his word affects you. It changes you. Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What Hebrews is saying, and what John and Peter and Paul, what they're all saying is, God's word pierces your heart. It's inescapable. Now I want you to try this. Before you read the Bible, any time... Just take a moment to say, Oh God, would you change my heart through your word? If you are spending any time with the Lord every day, and I know sometimes we're reading it on the Bart, uh, maybe just before you're about to rush out, take your Bible and you say, All right, I gotta just do my duty. You spend one minute reading the Bible. In and of itself, it's not a magic formula, but this is how gracious God is. And this is how powerful his word is. So if you just simply with your heart truly want it and say, Lord, I want to know you, please use your heart to transform me today. I know that he will. He will use it to impact you, to change you, to transform you, to affect you. Because his word says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through your thoughts and your intentions. It affects you. And so John is saying, this is an indication of the fact that you know him. You obey his word. 
and you have to want to do it. Let me show you another example of how this could work. For example, and this is so often how it isn't done, even in the church. In the church, again, and I've shared this enough, if you stay long enough, you will have a conflict with somebody. It could be with someone around you, right next to you. If you look to your left and your right, that person you could have a conflict with. You might have a conflict with me, one of the elders. If you stay long enough, you will have a conflict because that's what happens when you have two sinners gathering together. There is sin. There are tensions. If we were to really obey God in this, you know what our first reaction should be? Well, first we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm angry. This person has hurt me. And I'm hurt. I'm in pain. The next thing we would do, according to the Bible, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go and talk to that person. But it is very hard to talk to somebody when they sin against you because it's hard. It's humbling. It's actually, um, it's very humbling to go up to someone and say, no, you hurt me. It's hard to do that. You have to actually acknowledge that first, they matter enough to you. But secondly, you have to trust his word. You have to believe that when Jesus says and talks about this in Matthew 18, this is not, the problem with Matthew 18 is we think of that as the church discipline text. And discipline just sounds really bad. But you have to know that discipline always is meant to be for our good, for our love. As Hebrews 12 says, a father disciplines those children he loves. And that's why God does that for us. And the way that this happens almost all the time is by one person going to another. That's discipline. It's the discipline of impacting someone, caring enough, trusting in his word. That's what happens when you trust his word. But there's a fork in that road. And the fork is, on the one hand, trust God's word. You feel awkward, uncomfortable, and maybe they're going to take it the wrong way too. Or you trust his word and you decide to do it. Because the one side says you feel awkward and you're not going to do it. And guess what So happens so readily? Instead of talking to that person one-on-one, you start talking to your neighbor over there and you say, you know what this person did to me? They did X, Y, and Z. And suddenly that person hears one side and they start thinking, oh yeah, I know they're like that. And so they start gathering and then someone else, they bring another person. Hey, you know what? That person over there, you know, they're like this. They start gathering two, three, four people. Then a coalition builds. Then rumors start printing. Gossip, factionalism, dissension, discord. The enemy, he uses that. One little hurt. Maybe just a little prick. Something that just stung you a little bit. Maybe a sarcastic word that hurt you. And then you start going to someone saying, you know what? Did you notice they're so sarcastic? And we say, oh yeah. And we want to hear it. We want to listen to it. And we want to get empathy from that and sympathy. And it all starts snowballing. We start creating this huge brouhaha. And suddenly this person's going, why is everyone ignoring me? Why is everybody? And then they say, I don't think I want to come to this place. There's clicks here. And we like to use the word click to describe a church. Oh, there's a bunch of clicks here. It all happens because we don't believe in God's word. Matthew 18. 
If Matthew 18 was happening all around, we would be constantly having conversations. Good ones. Reconciliation would be happening. This is the gospel. The gospel is we are all unrighteous. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3. And yet, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Chapter 3, verse 21. Through Christ, who has become our righteousness, God put forward his son so that we are now righteous only in Christ alone. That it fuels me and empowers me then to say, I'm not righteous myself. They're not either. So I need to go in faith through his word to trust that I'm going to reconcile. And when those two come together, their relationship is stronger than ever before. And the world will know that we are his disciples. How? If we love one another. And love is one that covers a multitude of sins, as James says in James 5. It is one that keeps no record of wrongs, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. The assumption of the Bible is two people are always going to be sinning against one another. That's what those things mean. Those verses are pointing to. But love in Christ overwhelms that and is able to renew, transform relationship to a new place. The world will know, John 15, 13, that you are my disciples. If you love, meaning not have soppy, romantic, googly-eyed feeling love, but instead I have wrestled with you, we have conflicted and have conflicts and arguments, but we're not going to give up on one another. We are working this out together and we're reconciling and therefore I love you more than ever before because I love you with Christ's love. And that love, the world will know that we are his disciples. This is what it means to practically work out. This is just one of a gazillion examples of how to live a life with God's word at the center. I believe Matthew 18 to be true because Jesus said it. And I refuse to yield to gossip. And so therefore, if someone says to me, hey, you know about that person? My instinct should be, you know, I'm sorry, but have you had a chance to talk to that person? Well, no, I haven't. And I'd rather not hear it because I don't, I'm concerned for you. And I want us to abide by Matthew 18. I believe that is how we should be in relationship to each other. And you know what happens? They might either be turned off. Oh, how dare you say that to me? But if they're following Christ, they'll be convicted of their own sin and say, I'm sorry for even trying to get you. I was tempted. I need to go back to that person. This is how it means to live a life of trusting in God's word to be true. Oh, if the church, if we could uphold God's word at the center of everything. But it means we need to know it. We need to read it. We need to ask God, transform us through it. We need to say, I want to obey it. I won't perfectly obey it, but I want to. I desire to. I long to. People who know Jesus strive to know his word, long for it to transform them and to be changed by the gospel. The last test that we know Jesus is that we walk in the same way he walked. Verses 5b to 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When you look at Jesus, how Jesus describes what it looks like to know him, according to this verse, it's to walk with him. It's to abide. And those are essentially two ways to describe the same thing. 
The word abide is one of John's favorite words. It also means remain. He uses it more than any other New Testament writer, the word abide. And he used it in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Let me read this to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. We love verse 7, but we don't like the first part, verses 4 through 6. 7 without verses 4 through 6 will be used wrongly every time. Because we tend to think that, well, Jesus, all we need to do is ask whatever we want and you'll give it to us. Well, I pray for whatever it is. And if he doesn't provide it, what's wrong with you, Jesus? You, you promised. But we miss the idea of the remaining, of the abiding, of the vine and the branches. When a vine actually produces grapes, no vintner is going to go to that vine and cut it off and say, this is junk. I mean, if, if a vintner sees this beautiful branch that produces just wonderful grapes, then if they cut it off and say it's junk, something's wrong with that guy, that woman. I mean, really, there's a problem. Instead, when the vine produces those grapes, they, the vintner gets excited. They're, they're passionate about the fact that they've taken often years for vines to produce healthy grapes. And it's their joy, their delight. But... If the vine does not produce grapes over time, or if they're junky grapes, regardless of how long it took, the vintner will eventually say, this is not good enough. And they will cut off those branches and start all over because the vine is worthless. And so for Jesus, when he uses this metaphor, he's saying that the abiding is the, are the grapes. The abiding is the grapes. In other words, Jesus by his Holy Spirit abides in those who are walking in light. The person whom Jesus is abiding in, they're the fruit that is born. They have fellowship together. That's what John has spoken much about. The person who is walking in the light has fellowship with the Father and the Son and with others. It's also a promise that was given from way back when. Ezekiel describes it this way, one of the Old Testament prophets, and I'll put my spirit within you. God is talking here and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, this is what God does. He causes us to obey and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel from way back when is predicting a time where one day God's people will obey him, not because they're trying to fulfill some sort of command where they have to bring sacrifices to show they're obeying, but in their hearts, there's a transformation. And that heart says, I want to obey. I trust his word. No matter how difficult it sounds, I believe it. There's faith in those promises. Ezekiel prophesies that there will be this day that people will be changed by his spirit and they will want to obey. They will abide. They will abide in him. 
The Hebrews writer tells us that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's possible because God, by his Holy Spirit, changes our hearts through the gospel. And so if Jesus abides in us by his word, then we want to walk as he walked. We'll never be able to walk perfectly as he walked, but we want to. Again, I think the point that we miss out on is that we think that the expression, we look at the expression of everything, how we obey, the actions of it all, being a good moral parent, giving of our tithes and offerings, going overseas to serve him, your prayer life, God's word, the challenges for all of us, we ha- we can't get away from those expressions. And we look at those things as the end rather than the means or the, the fruit of it all. And so we get stuck on that and we think, as long as I do those things or we evaluate on the basis of those things, that's how we determine obedience to be. But the fact of the matter is we'll never be able to obey him perfectly. And if we could, what would be that magic number? How many prayers would you have to pray? How long? If you pray an hour, guess what? Someone will come along and say, you should pray two hours. If you have morning prayer at six o'clock, someone will say, that's not early enough. You should be praying at five o'clock. The, the, the goalpost keeps on getting moved when it comes to obedience. Because we're never supposed to evaluate it that way in the first place. It's supposed to be instead, I want to obey him. The heart is changed. And from that heart flows a desire. This is why Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29-30, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what he's saying. Obey me and you will find rest. Things will be easy and light. Look at those three words that describe obedience. How many of us think of those three words to describe obeying Jesus? Rest, easy, and light. The reason we find it almost an oxymoron, it's so contradictory, is because we only see it in terms of the fruit of obedience. We see the action and we determine, okay, I still don't get it. How is reading the Bible, which I have to do right before at six in the morning and praying for about an hour, that just seems heavy and very burdensome. How does coming to church every Sunday? And the problem is that we're evaluating completely on the basis of fruit. And that will always seem burdensome. But until you understand that Christ Jesus, he took the burdens. The reason why his burden is light is because he carried it for you. He carried every single act of self-righteousness that you and I have ever faced, not just externally, but internally in our hearts. He bore that on a tree on a cross. When he did that, we no longer have to bear that burden anymore. If we ever feel like we have to prove our worth or value to the world around us, our children need to act in a certain way. If you get out of hand, that looks really bad on me. If you fail in school and drop out, that looks bad on me as a father, as a mother. And then suddenly the weight of that is so heavy. It's so burdensome. 
That's not because Jesus makes it burdensome. That's because I make it burdensome. Jesus' whole point is, you know what? Whether your child fails or not, that has nothing to do with your value and worth. But you've placed it on yourself. I died to remove that from you, but you're placing it on yourself over and over again. The, the Christian-y stuff is meant to be a response. You know, we, for those of us who, you've been in, if, if you've been in a relationship, and if it's been a good one, and if it's any husband who's worth his salt, when you were dating husband, you were willing to do certain things. Well, hopefully you're willing to do it now even. But you, you want to drive great distances in snow, which I did. Great distances in snow. You know, you're willing to do whatever it takes and the burden seems light. See, the, the act, if I told you I drove every week four hours in the snow in like driving blizzards, which I did, you know, every weekend, was I was dating my wife, well, back then my girlfriend, that's, wow, that's so burdensome. I had people say that to me when I was in seminary and I'm driving out, ministering, and then going, coming back. They say, why are you doing that? Oh, it's because I'm, I'm dating somebody. I, I, I really want to marry her one day. And they say, that, that just seems too much. But the burden itself is burdensome. But if it's because of the effect of my heart, then that burden is very light. But if I look at it without the effect change, then it is always burdensome. And so coming to church is a burden if your heart isn't impacted first. But apart from Christ, what Jesus is saying is, and what John is saying is, obey him, trust him, tr be transformed, and you will find any act, no matter how great it is, even surrendering your body to the flames, will be a light burden. It, it's all about the transformation of your heart. Do you know that Jesus bore that for you on that cross? If you don't, I invite you to come to him. Because by doing so, your light burdens will melt away. And you will find every single burden of your life lifted. Doesn't mean it will be easy in terms of its external burden. But in your heart, oh, how light it will be. So that's how you know whether you know Jesus. Do you obey him? Are you willing to do so? Do you trust his word that fuels your obedience? And are you willing to walk the road that he walked, knowing that he's already taken all your burdens? I hope you're able to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we come and acknowledge that, first and foremost, that unless we are transformed in our hearts, we cannot obey you rightly. We won't be able to obey you. The transformation of our hearts, though, comes from the fact that Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, you saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of your great mercy, that mercy bought at the cross, that you substituted yourself for us so that we might have righteousness in Christ forever and so that Jesus would be our advocate. And therefore, we are free of every burden, Every command is light and easy once we know that to be true. But there are some in this room who do not understand that lightness. 
And I pray that you would open their eyes. Would you melt their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they would be able to see that following Christ Jesus, there is a joy unspeakable before them. And at this table as we come, we come with a heart that longs to know you and find our hope and satisfaction in you alone. So we thank you and we praise you. We give glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.